Good morning, church. If you would, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the last three verses, verses 31 through 33, and this has been, a, I think, an amazing section as we have been going through the duties of husbands and wives, and I think it's been very beneficial for our church, and um, I think it's, it's a good reminder for us as husbands how we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church, and it's a very uh, important thing for wives to understand that they are to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. And so as we look at these verses, I, I, I want to kind of go back, and I want to read all the way from, from verse 15, because I think the context of this passage is really important, because Paul is t- telling us how we as Christians are to walk, how we're to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And so uh, I, I want to begin in verse 15, so uh, please look at that with me. This is the very word of God, Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 15 through 33. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And this is our passage. Therefore, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Father, I I come before you as just a vessel, Lord, a vessel to proclaim the truth of your word, and I pray that, that as I preach these truths from your scripture, Lord, that you would give this congregation eyes to see the beauty of, of your splendor and majesty, the glory of the fact that this great mystery that, that Christ is our husband and that we are his bride, and that we'd also see the beauty of marriage being a, a reflection of that. Father, I pray that as we go through these verses that you would encourage us to, to love you more and to love one another. Lord, I thank you that you have allowed me to stand in this pulpit this morning to proclaim your word. Lord, I pray that you would use me for your glory and the good of your people. In your son's name I pray, amen. It isn't difficult to understand that that we see that marriage is under attack today. I mean, you look at at the world around us and you see this culture is so against the idea of marriage. There is delusion, there's confusion, and there is a rejection of biblical truth on the subject. And, you know, there are misunderstandings about where, where marriage came from, 
There are misunderstandings of, of its purpose. There are misunderstandings of the roles and responsibilities. And, and when we as Christians, you know, you go to a wedding, and a Christian wedding, and you'll often hear the, the, the preacher going through these passages and, and talking about submission or talking about headship. And, and, and often you'll see the unbelievers that are there at the wedding rolling their eyes and, 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 and turning their heads and, and scoffing at the truths that are, that are given to us by God for His glory and for our good. These misunderstandings are, are such that people just deny this whole idea of headship and authority, and we see it getting really worse and worse. Denying, you know, when, when, when Pastor Warren was, was talking about those who are biological males, why would we even have to say that? It's crazy the things that, that are happening. But I want to read you something from a book called Being Married. The subtitle is Being Married, a College Marriage Manual. A College Marriage Manual by Evelyn Duvall and Reuben Hill. And the copyright is, is 1960. 1960. And listen to how stored, distorted they view marriage. Quote, parents, teachers, and concerned adults all counsel against premature marriage. But they rarely speak the truth about marriage, as it is really is in the modern middle-class America. And then the truth as I see it, the truth as they see it, is that contemporary marriage is a wretched institution. It spells the end of voluntary affection, of love freely given and joyously received. Beautiful romances are transmuted into dull marriages, and eventually the relationship becomes constricting, corrosive, grinding, and destructive. The beautiful love affair becomes a bitter contract. And they explain the reason why. The basic reason for this sad state of affairs is that marriage was not designed to bear the burdens now being asked of it by the urban American middle class. It is an institution that evolved over centuries to meet some very specific functional needs of a non-industrial society. Romantic love was viewed as tragic or merely irrelevant. Today, it is the titillating prelude to the domestic tragedy, or perhaps more frequently, to domestic grotesqueries that are only pathetic. That's what we've been teaching in our universities for the last 60 years. And you wonder, you wonder why we are in the state that we are in. No, sadly, it's, it's, it's being taught to to our college students. And again, this was a college marriage manual. Not too many years ago, even in our society, when I look back at my grandparents, I see that they honored marriage. And I look out at this group of people and I see that we are a people who honor marriage as it should be. But we've seen that there's this all-out assault on marriage and it's just satanic and sinful. But we must understand that that attack on marriage goes back to the very Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Our passage actually quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, in, in verse 31, where Paul says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, that, that union, that one flesh union was, was God creating marriage in the garden. But we know that in the very next chapter, in, in Genesis chapter 3, we see sin entering the world as, as Satan, in the form of a serpent, attacks the very roles and responsibilities of husbands and wife, as well as the very word of God. But we have to understand as Christians, we... We hold on to the, the foundation of marriage as God has designed it, as He has designed it. Going back to that, you know, it, it's just an evolution of, of things for society. No, God has designed marriage. He's designed marriage, and, 
And this truth, this uh, Paul is, is, is not arguing from a position of marriage in our society today. And he's not arguing from a position of first century Ephesus as he's writing to the Ephesians. No, he's, he's writing and arguing from, from creation itself. I've been reading a book called Gospel-Shaped Marriage. Gospel-Shaped Marriage. And the, the authors list four stages of marriage history. Four stages of marriage history. And the first stage is the gar- what they call the garden variety marriage. It's, it's going back to the garden even before the fall. It's, it's the, the institution of marriage that Adam and Eve in their, in their infancy experienced. And this is a, a marriage in its initial state and was perfect. It was as perfect as it could be. And Adam and Eve were, were able to sin. We know that. But they were also able not to sin. But enter into sin, that leads us to the second stage that these authors talk about. It's the fallen marriage. And this is a marriage that after the fall, they, they suddenly found out what it was like not to be able not to sin. Sin was just part of their lives. Sin was part of the human race. And there, there was no ability not to sin. Everything that was, was done without faith was, was sin. In this state... In the state that they didn't have the gospel to hope in. But that leads us to the, the third stage, marriage on the way that they talk about. And, and this is a marriage with, with the hope of the gospel because God did not leave his creation alone in, in, in its hopeless state, but he, he broke into creation. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And this stage of marriage is for those who trust in the Son and, and rely on the Spirit of God. And they, so they enter this uh, this other state, and they become, become able not to sin. See, we have, we have the ability not to sin any longer, uh, and that ability to sin is limited be, because we, we are still in this flesh. But it doesn't, doesn't stop there. No, this, this is good news because we have a hope. And this is why Paul is writing these things to the Ephesians. We have a hope that our marriages can be different because we've been freed. We've been freed to be able to love like Christ loves. We, we've been freed to submit as the church submits to Christ. But that's not the final state. The final state, or, or the fourth stage, is the, the consummate marriage. The consummate marriage. In this final stage uh, of, of history, it begins in the future. It begins in the future when we will, will no longer be able to sin. We know that's not today, is it? And we still have this uh, ability to sin. But, but remember what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 22. He talks about that, that in heaven, we will not be given in marriage. We will be like the angels in heaven. We will no longer be given in marriage. But it doesn't mean that marriage doesn't exist in heaven. But it's in this stage that marriage exists only in the marriage of Christ and his church. And, and, and why that gives us hope? Because it puts marriage, our marriages right now, in the right perspective. That this is not the end of everything. That we are, are, are living in a way, and that, that as we live in our marriages, as we, as we love our wives, as, as wives submit, we're doing it for a, a better reason, a future reason. A heavenly reason. Because as we live out the gospel in our marriages, we're building an, an eternal kingdom. And so we're experiencing these things in our marriages to sanctify us so that, so that we will be ready for heaven. And that's, I think, when we look at this, when we come to these verses in, in chapter 5, verses 31 through 33, Three, we see that the main point is, is understanding that marriage points to that relationship of Christ and the church. And I want to say this <clears throat> very strongly to, to the men. And I think Kevin really hit on this last week. But I want to say this very strongly to you men. As the picture of Christ in your marriage, as, a, as the head of your wife, you are the key. Paul is, is finishing up this, these last three verses, really continuing to, 
to, to basically finish the, the duties of husbands. No, it, as you see yourself as a picture of, of Christ in your marriage, that's a key for you loving and, and leading your wife. And how you love and how you serve and how you sacrifice for your wife, you are, you are the key to spiritual unity in, in your marriage relationship. And here's the thing. So, so often we as men are, are, are wanting to just fix things. And so what we do is we, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love my wife because I want to get her to submit to me. But you're missing the point. We should want to love our wives because Christ commands us to love our wives. We should want to love our wives because in loving our wives, we are picturing Christ. That should be our, that should be our goals. And, you know, God will use you as a tool of redemption in your, in your marriage and a, a tool of redemption in society. And we do this for the long haul, and we do it regardless of, of how our wives respond to us. So you're working, or are you working towards that unity in your marriage? Wives, are you working at that, that unity in your marriage? Are you, are you working at that, that oneness in your, your marriage, husbands? If you look in your notes, you, there's three, three passages. I'm going to spend most of my time in the first two and briefly finish the third one. But, but let's go ahead and look at this passage. And the first point is this, the foundation... The foundation of marriage, leaving and cleaving. And we see this in verse 31. Look what it says. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And what that, what that tells us, I think, in a general sense is this, that, that there should be no place for rivals in your marriage. No place for rivals in, in your marriage. And when you look at the relationship that, that Christ has with the church, the church is Christ's prize. Christ doesn't save anybody outside the church. Christ saves those who are in the church, and it's, it's a magnificent love that he has for the church, and it's, it's not for these competing loves. There's, there's this glorious love that he has for his church. And when you look at the Old Testament, you see this as glimpses in the Old Testament when you see that sin is condemned. And what sin is mostly condemned in the Old Testament? Idolatry. And what is idolatry often referred to as in the Old Testament? Adultery. When, when God's people leave God and they go after other things, it's, it's spiritual idolatry. I mean, Jeremiah 3, verse 8 says, all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel. One of the ways in which God assures his people of his love for them is that he describes himself as their husband because God's people were to have a love for only him. And we see that in really in this passage. Again, it says, Therefore a man shall, so, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And this passage is, is building up. And, and when he uses this word, therefore, what do we say when we see the word therefore? What is it therefore? When we see that word therefore, we say, what is it therefore? And look back at verses 29 through 30. In verses 29 through 30, it says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. See, Paul has just got done saying we are members of his body. We are, we are in a one flesh relationship with Christ. And he says, if that is the case, then, then husbands and wives should also be in that one flesh relationship with their wives. So in the same way that we are to love our wives because we, we are to love them as we love our own bodies, because in one sense, we understand that our wives are one with us in our bodies. Again, verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And these are extremely strong words, and there is a leaving, and there is a cleaving or a joining together. The word leave here really does not 
have the sense of what Paul is saying. I mean, that's our English word, but this, this word means to, to abandon or, or to forsake. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden, you know, I forget my parents. It doesn't mean that I, I don't talk to my parents anymore. I have, I have forsaken them. I have abandoned them. I, I have abandoned them. I, I have nothing to do with them. Now remember, the fifth commandment is what? Honor your father and mother. So it doesn't mean that we totally forsake our, our parents. I want to tell my, my kids that, right? <laughs> no, I love my kids. I, I love my grandkids. No, I want them to be there. I want to be able to impart wisdom to them. I want, you know, I, I want to teach them. I, I want to show them. I want to, to be able to counsel them. But what it does mean is that this love that they now have for, for their wives is exclusive between uh, the, them and their wives. And, and it's in, in contrast to the love that, that they have for my wife and I, my kids. In contrast to the love that they have for each other, I want to be a glorious, self-sacrificing love for each other. It's a completely different entity now. You know, when... When her children, that chief relationship while, while their ch- children is, is with your parents, but there's a, a leaving and there's a forsaking of that bond that you have as children to create, what, a new, a new bond. Let me just say this, that those of you who happen to be newly married, this is something that you really have to remember. There is a, a leaving parents. There's, a, there's an idea that we are not going to, to bring them into our relationship, where they take the center position. We're not going to bring them into all the decisions that we are making. No, get advice, but, but make those decisions together. And I'm not going to bring them into all the, the difficulties and, and the problems that you're having. Now, I know when we, we were newly married, there were times then, can't say that now, but there were times then that I was a, I could be a knucklehead. <laughs> Newly married man, doing things I shouldn't be doing, not being wise in the decisions I make. And so my wife, she goes to her father. She goes to her father and she wants to talk about these things. And I appreciate my father-in-law because what he he does as he says, don't come and talk to me about your husband because you're going to go home and forgive him, and I'm not. Wise. Wise advice. Wise advice. My father-in-law has forgiven me much. <laughs> but wise advice. You know, there's a leaving and there's a cleaving to your spouse. And let me just say that this for the parents also. Because we've been, we've been trying to fix our children their whole lives. And now they go and they get married and what do we want to do? We see something that's out of line. We see th- something that's, that's off-center and we, you know, I've got to continue to fix this. I've got I to continue to fix this. No, you don't have to fix it. It's good, it's good to give advice. But there's times I have to step back as a, as a father as, as I see my married children, and I have to say, I need to let them make their decisions. And even if some of those decisions fail or are difficult, I know that God is good. When I look about the decisions that that my wife and I made, or the decisions that I made as a husband, and I see their failure. I look back at those things, and what I do is I say, God, I thank you for those. Because you and your sovereignty and your goodness have shown me and taught me through my marriage. Especially through those difficulties. No, and we can do more, we can do more damage than, than good by by trying to insert ourselves 
with our children is when they get married. And so we see this, we see this leaving, and you have a responsibility. We, we have a responsibility, not just for husbands to leave and to cleave to their wives, but, but we as parents have a responsibility, since we know that they are to cleave or leave, that they should do that. It's our responsibility to, to teach them that. You need to leave. But Paul goes on, and because there is a leaving of this relationship, there's also a cleaving, or is in the ESV, holding fast to his wife. And that word which is translated holding fast or, or leave or to, to join has this idea of, of gluing together. It's this strong bond, and it was often used to, uh, to weld two pieces of, of metal together where they, they become one. But they're, they're two distinct pieces, aren't they? And I think that's a good point because we often don't understand what this, this cleaving to or this becoming one flesh. And we often think that it's, it's just the, the blending of two people where they lose their identity. But that's not the case. We retain our identities. In the church, in the church, we are one body made up of individuals. And we all have different... Sorry about that. Siri, <laughs> somebody, one of you young people, can you teach me how to turn that off? Where was I? <laughs> We're one body. We have many members. We're all different. We all have different functions. And so when we, we look at that in the body of Christ, we come to our marriages and we would call ourselves what? complementarians. We are two individuals, yet we complement each other. We complement each other. We're, we don't lose our identities. Harold Horner in, Honer in his commentary says this, and I really like this. He says, the man, and the, wo- <clears throat> excuse me, the man and the woman are two independent entities before they marry. When they marry, the husband is to leave his father and mother, and they shall be glued or cemented to each other. It can be compared to, to two objects that have been glued together, each maintaining its distinctive features. It is not the same as an alloy that when mixed together, they become something completely different. Because in that case, the, the distinctives of each person will be lost. And then he quotes from another commentator. He says, Beatty states it well. Each personality is enlarged by the inclusion of the other ideally affecting the perfect blending of two separate lives into one. Continuity with the old personality is not broken, but the radical transformation resulting from the intimate personal encounter creates a new self. You realize when you, when you come together, you leave and you cleave. It, it, it's a strong bond that brings you together, that you're completely a separate entity, but you still have your distinctiveness. But, but that, that close cementing or gluing is even strengthened by him saying this, and, and the two shall, shall become one flesh. You have this new one flesh relationship. And, and, and certainly there's, a, there's part of the, the sexual union, but it's more than that. It's more than that. There's a, a, a coming together of soul and spirit. I can tell you how many times but, that my wife and I, I will state something, and my wife will say, I'm thinking exactly the same thing. But there's a, there's a, a unity, and you know, we haven't lost our, our personalities, but this, this unity takes these two people. And I was thinking about that. You know, if, I, if Penny and I were, wanted to have you know, a couple or, or somebody over in our church, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, Dave... I want you to come over, would I? I wouldn't say, Hope, I want you to come over. I would say, I want the Laneys to come over. Because there's that unity, and, 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 and so we, we see that there, there's a oneness that happens here, and this oneness is God's design for, for marriage, and there's this enduring, cementing, 
of these two lives together. And I think it's sad that we don't realize how important this is. And let me say this on the, the basis of this passage, that, that when we realize this, that we understand that the problem, the problems that we have in marriage are not horizontal. When we think about marriage and we think about the problems we have, we tend to think, look, it's the other person. It's the other person's fault. It's the other person's issues. We have to, we have to fix this. No, when we think of this, we don't want to be pointing the fingers. The problem is not horizontal. The problem is vertical. It's vertical. And I think when we start to, to truly seek the Lord with all our hearts and with all our minds and with all our strength, there's no doubt that we're going to continue to grow together. You know, I remember early in, in marriage counseling or in premarital counseling even and, and using this as an illustration, that an illustration of a triangle and putting God at the top of that triangle and the husband on one bottom of the triangle and the wife on the other. And we're constantly trying to get closer together. And we're failing, and as one wants to move up towards God, the other one wants to move towards the other person, yet they stay the same distance apart. But if we simply choose to, to seek God with all our hearts, not focusing on what the other's responsibilities are, but focusing on our, our own responsibilities and honoring God, the, the, the truth is we will begin to grow together closer and closer it's a, it's a vertical issue. And when we look at, when we look at the Word of God, that, that's what this book is, is about. It's about reflecting Him. When, when He becomes the center of all that we, the, that we say and all that we do, we will cultivate this one flesh relationship. And sadly, there are Christians who think that, that they seriously think about just severing this relationship. You know, this is you know, I've just had it. I, you know, I would, rather, I would rather be single. I remember years ago, I, my wife and I, we owned a triplex in Long Beach, and we had a young couple, and they came and lived in our, one of our units, and they were living there, and, and they had gotten married, and, you know, we thought this was going to be a great opportunity to, to, you know, love this young couple that was living there. And, and a few months after they got married, they got their their signed marriage license back in the mail. And it had been something, it had been damaged in some way. And the county had, had sent it back and said, look, we need you to go and, and get a new marriage license, have your pastor sign it, and, 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 and then send it back in. And the young wife saw this as an opportunity to get out of the marriage. This was a mistake. Look, I'm not married any longer. Wait, you had, you had gone through a wedding, a Christian wedding ceremony. You had made vows before God and before others. And now you're choosing to forsake this and, and, and say that it was a mistake. No, it, it wasn't a mistake. Remember, Jesus quotes <clears throat> Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 through 6, when he says this, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And he says this, What, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. When we see this institution of marriage, we have to understand that when, when people make this one flesh commitment, that God is sovereignly working to bring these two people together. He is sovereignly doing this. It's, it's not a mistake. It's a, it's a necessary relationship that God uses to make us more like Jesus. When I look back at my relationship with my wife, I am a better man because of my wife. I'm a better man because of my wife. I'm a better man because of my union with my wife. I'm a better man for all of the trials we go through together. 
No, people think that they only have, they have two options. I just need to stay in this, in this horrible marriage or get out of it. Those are the two options I have. Stay in this horrible ma- ma- marriage or I, or I get out of it. But, but there's a, a third one, isn't there? And that third one is this, that, that we look back at our, our passage. We look back all the way to verse 15 where it says, Look carefully then how you walk. Be wise. Don't be foolish. And then we look back at these verses in, in chapter 5, verse 22 through 33, uh, for the glory of God and, and, and the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would live in such a way that husbands would love wives. Do you think, do you think Paul just gave us these truths for no reason? No. God gave us these so that, that we could have marriages. And then we're going to see in our very next, pa- uh, next point that, they are, that our marriages can be a... Re- a reflection of Christ in the church. So that brings us to our second point, the mystery of marriage. And as Paul is, is talking about that, he's quoted Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that, that a husband shall leave his father and mother and, and hold fast to his wife, and the, the two shall become one flesh. And then he makes this statement about marriage. And he says this, this mystery... This mystery is profound. This, this marriage, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And I know, and I, I really do think that one of the most damaging things in marriage is, is selfishness. Is selfishness. And I think for, even in my own marriage, it's, those times that we're, we're, we're struggling, it's, it's times where we have an inability to, to see our own sin. And, and I think if you look at that, it's easy, if you look at things that way in your marriage, and it, it's easy for a wife to say, you know what, I am not going to submit unless. Unless my husband loves me, I'm not going to submit. Or a husband can say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to be willing to love my wife unless she submits to me. And we know that that's just a, a trading me- mentality, and it's, it's basically a, an escape hatch. It's as if you, in your marriage covenant, you, you have written in this clause that, that says, I can get out of this. I don't have to be obedient to Christ if, if this person does, doesn't do what they're supposed to do. No, but I, I think that the secret of, in living out this truth of this amazing gift that God has given us is, again, not looking horizontal, horizontally, but looking vertically. And I think that's why Paul adds <clears throat> this here. And to recognize that there is an eternal purpose that we as husbands and, and wives shine forth when we respond in marriage in a Christ-glorifying way. Now, in other words, it's not just about me and her. It is that in our marriages, we display one of the greatest truths in the universe. One of the greatest truths in the universe. And when when we go through difficulties in our marriage, how we respond to those difficulties really gives us an opportunity to, to... to display this truth of the gospel to each other and, and to our children and to the world, that we are, are different, that, that, that we have been changed. Again, verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound. This mystery is profound. It's glorious. And now here is the question, why? What is this mystery? What is this mystery? It, the mystery is is not marriage itself, but the mystery is what marriage displays. And as we obey these commands, we see that this mystery, that Christ in his relation to the church is the symbol that is demonstrated in marriage. And so you have a responsibility, not only to your, for your own happiness and, and your own joy in your marriage, not just for your own wife and your own children, but you have a responsibility to show the world the, the relationship between Christ and the church. 
that he has demonstrated in sending his son to, to be the savior of his bride. You know, this, this mystery isn't something that, that we can discover on our own. A mystery is something that has been revealed by God. It's an amazing mystery. There's, in fact, there's really no greater mystery in it. It's really tied to the mystery of, of God uniting Jews and, and Gentiles into one body. You know, if we are part of, of Christ's body. And think about that. Think about the love of Christ as we, as we sing his praises. I mean, we come here and we sing his praises and we, we sing these different songs. And we can never really exhaust our worship and our praise for him, can we? I mean, songs are going to be continually written more and more about the glorious person of Christ. And we're going to continue to, to sing these songs even into eternity. And when we see that this holy God took on human flesh and who was perfect in every way, and he came to earth in the form of a man and, and lived a perfect life and suffered this horrible death, and we think about his, phys, his physical agonies on the cross and compounded on that, that it was our sin and our thoughts and our evil deeds laid upon him. And that he did this voluntarily to give his life as a ransom for our sin. And we remember what kind of people that he, he died for. That it wasn't his friends and it wasn't for those who were, were good and, and upright, but it was for sinners. It was for his enemies. It was for people who had trampled his glory. And when we think about his love and, and why we love, that he, we love because he first loved us. This glorious love, this glorious relationship that, that we are brought into in Christ, this, this glorious mystery. We can say, yes, husbands. Husbands, you can. You can love your wives as Christ loved the church. When you think of all the things that he sacrificed for, and when the, and when the church submits to Christ, that's a picture of a wife submitting to her husband in reverence to Christ. And so a wife can say, look, what Christ has done for me, that's a beautiful thing, and, and I love him, and I want to obey him, and so I can obey him in submitting to my husband. Our, our devotion and our delight is, is there because, because we have Christ as our example. I like what... MacArthur said, he said, I guess the question in the end then is, is this, is we need to ask ourselves, the closer people get to our marriage, do they get closer to seeing the relation between Christ and his church? Because that's our responsibility. Ultimately, when we think of this, our, our marriages are about the gospel. How are you displaying the gospel to a world that that desperately needs you through your marriage. You know, it's a, I, can, I get to, to live for Christ in this way. I get to live for Christ in this way. And that brings me to my final point. And we see it at the end of verse, in verse 33, where Paul kind of comes back. We see the duties of marriage. He says in verse 33, he says, however. I just want to stop there. He says, however. You know, as Paul is declared this truth that, uh, of the glorious truth of the, the gospel in Christ is, is, a, is a picture, or our marriages are a picture of Christ in the church. And he says, however, and some versions translate this, nevertheless, or in any case. And I think, as I said, what Paul is doing here is he's bringing us back to the main concern, and he's bringing us back to the application for the husband and wife. And, and I say husband and wife because I want you to notice that Paul uses the singular here. If you go back at uh, the previous uh, passages in, in verse 22, he says wives, plural, and verse 25, he says husbands, plural. But in these verses, he says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Again, it's becoming singular. And one commentary said this, that it's, it's a difficult 
It's a difficult phrase to translate, this, this, this phrase, let each one of you. And the commenta- commentary said this, that it could be translated this way, you, you, every single one of you. And so there's this admonition that, is, that Paul is bringing here. And he's, I think what he's doing is he's summarizing uh, what he has said in chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, and he strengthens it with Genesis chapter 2, each husband. And, and I think that the, what he's saying is each husband must love his own wife as himself because she is one flesh with him. But I, I was thinking about moving from the, the plural to the singular. And, and if, if I could just say this, if I say the, the plural, I would say to you this, husbands, Love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. But if I'm going to move to the singular, what am I going to say? Kevin, love Linda. Nate, love Linda. Isaac, love Chelsea. Steve, love Minnie. Mark, love Paula. Dave, love Hope. There's an admonition. Brothers, brothers, love your wives as Christ loved the church. But then, and I think it emphasizes the the strong point that Paul's making to the husbands when he moves to the wives. Because what he does is Paul changes his tone and he softens it. Again, you have this strong husband you, husband, love your wife. Then he moves to this. He says, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You can kind of sense that, that softness. You, every single one of you, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It doesn't, it doesn't diminish the responsibility of the wife, does it? That word respect is phabeo in Greek, and it has, it's the word that we get what? Phobia, fear. Wives, fear your husband. But it's the same word in verse 21 where Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence, reverence for Christ. He doesn't say submit in this verse. He, he says to, to reverence or, or to respect your husbands. But, and when we see the, this amazing love that, of the Lord Jesus Christ for his church and see what he's done, and we see his, his majesty and his holiness, and we see his goodness, it creates a reverence in us for him. And wives are to reverence or, or respect their husbands. Earlier, earlier was kind of funny. I was next door and I'd been studying. My wife is moving back and forth and doing things. She doesn't know I'm going to say this, but I'll tell her later. <laughs> I was walking by and I hear this, dude. <laughs> My wife never said, <laughs> she, and I didn't know she was there. I said, dude? <laughs> she goes, I know, that was weird. <laughs> Wives, don't call your husband dude. (laughs) Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. I'm going to really finish with this. Our marriages really boil down to worship. You know, you'll hear us say here at Redeem South Bay that worship is not singing songs. Singing songs can be worship. You know, we'll say, you know, we come to a worship service, so everything that we do, the preaching of His Word, the listening to His Word, the the singing of songs, the fellowship can all be considered worship. When we think of our our marriages, do we we see them as a a way that, that we can worship? that we can worship Christ. 
Do you see the, the, the way you, you love your wife is a, a way that you can worship Christ? Do you see that the way that you can respect your husband is a way to, to worship Christ? You know, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, and, and I think we tend to not think of it this way, but he says, whatever you do, the way you live in your marriage, whatever you do, he says, work heartily. Do it with all your heart. Work heartily. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. What has Paul just said? Don't love your wives so that you get the praise from her. Don't don't submit to your husband so you get the, the praise from him. Love and submit because, you, because of who he is. Regardless of whether you get the praise from them. No, we do this. We do this with all our hearts and with all our mights. And we do it because he's worthy. And we do it because as we live out in our marriages... People will see that our marriages are different, that our marriages mean something, and that our marriages are a reflection of Christ and His church. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your goodness to us, that You did not leave us in that second stage or fallen marriages, but you redeemed us. You gave us your spirit. You've caused us, caused those of us who are in Christ to be born again to a living hope. You have empowered us by your spirit that we might love as Christ loves, that we might submit even as Christ submitted to you. Lord, we thank you again for your word. I pray that you would write you would write it on our hearts. In your son's name we pray. Amen.